This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. Thank you for being here today. And, and as, I, as I mentioned those announcements earlier, just there's so much happening in our church. If you have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and have you get to the place you need to be in Matthew chapter 20. So whether you have a paper Bible or a tablet or a phone, however you do it, uh, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 20. I was asked a few uh, days ago uh, about some of the things that, uh, or what would be the focus for 2018 here at First Baptist. What are some of the, the front burner issues that, that we feel have to be uh, addressed, some things that we're walking into, leading into, that will uh, really make 2018 kind of a uh, a unique year for us as a church and some things that need to be focused upon. Really, three things have, have come to mind. Uh, the first is the introduction uh, fully of the family equipping model of ministry and discipleship that we know God has uh, instructed us in Scripture to lead into. That family equipping model, we've talked about it through some of our, our information through preschool children and uh, student ministry. But coming February 10th, we'll be launching into a series that is while it, it may seem um, thematic, it is thematic in the sense it's about the discipling model that God has given us uh, through the overarching teaching of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. And so uh, we're going to go through that series on Sunday morning. There'll be a survey that I'll need to, to put out there to some of our parents and adults to help with some research that I'm doing. But the family equipping model is something that, that convictionally we believe must happen within our church and at all campuses. And let me tell you what it's not. It's not just dumping a bunch of resources on parents. We have resources. We love, re- I love resources. I love books. I have shelves after shelves of books. I, uh, I stop by cheap $3 bookstores looking for deals all the time. I, I like reading. I like finding those, those treasures in the books. But a family equipping model of ministry is not just giving parents another book. It's much more than that. Those will help, but we want to walk through that a bit more as well. So what that means is, is the intent in 2018 is, is to, to lead us into that model of ministry, which we know must take place to be, help us to be healthier in our student ministry, children's and preschool, and all across the board with adults as well. And it'll, it'll, it'll become fun when you realize that regardless of what Sunday school class you're in, it will impact you. Uh, so if you know, I don't have kids, I don't have grandkids, uh, it's a church-wide focus of discipleship, and it's not just for children, not just for parents. So that's one. The second is the, the uh, uh, really working toward a covenant membership here at the church. We'll be talking more about that over the next few months, but, but we, we, I'm using the word convictional not because uh, it, it, it's long and it sounds good, but because I am actually convicted that we as a church, much like other churches, are actually uh, sinning by having 2,000 church members and six to 800 attenders. I don't see at any point where that works. I don't understand that. I don't understand how you can be a member of a church and be not engaged at any level for 10, 20, 30 years. That doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense for the church to allow that to continue on. And so at some level, we've got to say, what does it mean to be a member of a church? We have people on the roll of our church that are probably members of about 10 churches. They've never told us they're not members here anymore. We just don't know that. We have people that that um, just choose never to engage for whatever reason. They're upset, they're not happy, they're hurt, I mean, I, you know, whatever. But at some point, membership is a covenant. 
And every church member, if I were to ask you, hey, church member, what does it mean to be a member of this church? What is expected of you? Well, that'd be an interesting conversation. There's also the other half of that conversation. Church member, what is expected of the church for you? Because it is a covenant relationship. So we're going to talk more about that, and that might change some numbers, but thank God he has a different scorecard than many denominations. So those two things. The third thing that's really, if, you could, if I had a stove with three front burners, these are the three front burner issues. Our educational teaching ministry is hurting. It's sick. It's not healthy. Small groups, the ones that are healthy, are really good. But we aren't multiplying. We aren't making disciples who make disciples. We haven't grown in the area of a teaching ministry in years. We've not launched new groups consistently. We've not engaged new people for teaching consistently. The groups that we do have are good. So it's not a knock on those. But we have absolutely no groups meeting at 1045 right now. That's unacceptable. We have home groups, which we have launched, but no home group is consistently meeting on a weekly basis as far as we know, and that's another issue as far as we know. And so our teaching ministry is not what it should be, nor should it be what it used to be, just in case you think I want to go backwards. I have a feeling if you go back to the way it used to be, you finally end up exactly where you are today. So I think there's a better way. So the teaching ministry is the third element that I think we must address intentionally in 2018. Will all of these things be fixed in a year? No. I hope they're fixed in my lifetime, but not in a year. But I do know that as a church, God has blessed us immensely. And he has given us some great opportunities and great people. And God, we all know that he has more for us. And so I'm excited about what God has for us in 2018. I know, all of, I know all of you are just as excited about me knowing that change will come and it'll impact you in negative ways. Okay, good. I've just seen if you're listening. All right. Because, ah, you know, it, but we know things must happen. And it's good. I want to... Uh, talk to you about what's happening in Matthew chapter 20 and reveal some things that, that God has really led me toward in the study of the gospel of Matthew over the last year and a half. Um, I think there's value in teaching the word of God systematically. I know we're going to take a break in February and kind of kind of do a theme over this family equipping, but even in the theme that we're doing in February, it still is expositional as we go from subject or scripture to scripture to scripture to scripture across the board. It's not just random. And as we look at Matthew 20, verse 17, I'm, I'm taken with what is happening in this passage and how it fits in this chapter. So let me read this to you. Begin in verse 17. It says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, as I read that and just kind of unpack some of this that's happening in this section, I, I, I want to make a confession to you that in my personal life and as pastor, and I even think as most of us as Christians, we fail in the way we read and study Scripture. I think that especially when it comes to the gospel accounts. Now, let me just go ahead. I know we're at all different levels here in this room. But when we say gospel, knowing that word means good news, we're talking about the, the fullness of God's good news through Jesus Christ and the redemptive message that the entire Scripture unfolds for us. Um, 
And yet there are four books in the New Testament that have the name Gospel in the title. The Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. They tend to run in the same lanes. John is, uh, is similar, but he kind of is kind of off to the side running along. It's kind of like if you can picture a, in the Old West, you got the, you got the wagon or the stagecoach with a team of horses pulling. They're all working together. Then you got the horse running to the side. They're going the same direction. That's John. I think he's kind of running to the side. It's all truth, all inspired by the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to these human beings to pen the words that God would give them to say, God in his divine wisdom utilizing their own personalities in the way that they wrote. And yet every word is inerrant because it's God-breathed. And so you have this, but here's where we fail. I think we sometimes fail. We can't help it because of our Western mindset and because how we read books. We go from left to right, go from top to bottom, and we tend to read gospel accounts the way we read the letters in the Bible. Now, the letters, the epistles, the rest of the New Testament, most of it. After you get past Acts, you have um, the letters to the Romans and the Corinthians and Thessalonians. You've got letters to pastors like Timothy and Titus. You've got letters from Peter. You've got letters written to the Hebrews. I mean, so letters are written uh, in, in a very uh, systematic way, similar way, chronologically. You, you, you open a letter, you read a letter, and you read a letter written to you from a friend or an email from somebody is much like how you read the letters in the Bible. It starts off with uh, most of them. This is uh, Paul. I wrote this letter. I'm with this guy and this guy, and we're writing it to you people, and this is what we're going to tell you. And then he'll kind of work his way through some encouraging words. I'm so honored and blessed to have served with you, blah, 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 blah. However, I've heard some things, and he'll go into some of the things that he has heard that that church or those individuals may or may not be doing. And then often the author will then say, here's some corrective information. And so we read letters as they're supposed to be read chronologically, beginning to end. You could sit down and knock the entire letter out in one reading. The problem is, is when we take that model of reading and we lay it over the Gospels. Because the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not meant to be read like that. And when we read them like that, in my Western mindset, which I can't get, get away from, I will, much like you will, miss much of what God is saying to us through these gospel accounts. We can't help it. We'll miss it. And, 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 and I want to make sure, now this morning it may fall in a little more of the teaching aspect. Have you ever heard someone say this? Well, he's more of a teacher than a preacher. You ever heard of that about a pastor? Okay. Uh, let me just go ahead and clarify that if any preacher is not a teacher, that preacher shouldn't be a preacher. All right, because hooting and hollering and emotional movement just to get a response because that's good preaching may not be good preaching. Good preaching includes solid teaching. The reason we often say, well, he's a good teacher, more, than a, more a teacher than a preacher, what we're really saying is that was boring. That's what we're really saying, right? And so I'm going to try to not be boring today, but I think that to strip away the teaching aspect of what must be done from the pulpit and in the church is to sin. Because if you read the Great Commissions, there is actually a command to every Christian that you and I, by the way, you don't get an out on this. Nobody gets an out. No Christian gets to say, well, that's not my spiritual gift. Every Christian is commanded to teach. You don't get an out. Well, I don't like teaching. Since when did God care what you liked? I mean, if all we did in our Christian life was what was comfortable, we would all be sitting in padded pews in climate-controlled buildings. Wait a minute, no, never mind, let me back up. If all we did in the Christian life is what was comfortable, this is all we'd do. And this, if this is all we're doing, 
we're wasting time. So God calls us out of our comfort. And in the Great Commission, whether you read Matthew, Mark, or even Luke's version of that commission, Matthew's being probably the most memorized, go therefore into all the world, baptize them, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And do what? Teach them. Them. Teach them to observe all these things. All that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you till the end of the age. So you may not have a teaching degree. Doesn't matter. You may not have a class. Maybe you're called to that. Maybe not. But you as a Christian, just as I as a Christian, we are called and commanded to teach. Could be you're teaching your spouse. Could be you're teaching your children, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker. But teaching is a declarative thing. And let me go ahead and just pause on this one too and make sure we get this. What pastors are called to do is something very challenging, unique, and anybody who aspires to be a pastor uh, because it looks like a great career move is a fool and no one you should have in the pulpit. Because the pastors are called to not, here's what we're not called to do. I'm not here to share a word with you. Share a word with you. Now that's said a lot in classes, that's said a lot in churches. I just want to share something with you today. I don't want to share squat with you today. I don't. Because sharing is a huge, amazing waste of time. I am not called to share with you. I am not called to, to you know, share my feelings and have you share. This is not a sharing moment. This is not care and share time. This is declare time. The Word of God is not meant to be shared by pastors. The Word is truth, and it is to be declared unapologetically. Meaning this, there, is often, there will be often times and have been times when I will preach the Word of God unapologetically and it will offend you just as it hurts me because it always does this is a time of declaration this is a time of truth laid before us and response for us and it really strips away that i like christianity when it fits in my box and it's comfortable and works on my schedule and everything works with the kids and everything and not a no 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 when we declare the truth as it's meant to be it's going to push us out of our comfort zones and cause us to make hard choices in life. So therefore, my calling is to declare truth to you today, and in the meantime, while doing so, I will be attempting, under the Spirit's guidance and under His strength alone, teach you the Word of God. The issue of educational ministry being in a quandary in our church is not just our church, it's across the board in many, many evangelical churches. It's pretty much common throughout the Western evangelical world, to tell you the truth, when teaching the Word of God, which as I said is declarative, when teaching of the Word of God is abandoned or mishandled and doctrine is ignored, we will find ourselves not only lamenting the loss of biblical literacy among those who claim to be Christians, but at risk of perpetuating a model of church that has proven over time to not work. And when true doctrine and good doctrine and well-handled scripture is not provided to the church, we run the risk of having some extreme responses. One is, one extreme response within the American church we are seeing, unfortunately, hugely impacting our world is the rise of pastor idolization and celebrity preachers. It's happening. And it's not always the preacher's fault, just in case you didn't know that. But it happens. And the other extreme is if the, idol, the idolized pastor is not uh, addressed, some, sometimes what you end up with are empty pulpits, whether literally or figuratively. And when you have empty pulpits for a season, whether there's still a guy preaching or not, it could still be empty. 
All right? But if the pulpit remains empty for a season long enough, it ultimately will result in empty pews. And empty pews and empty rows and empty buildings and empty campuses or wherever it may be leaves a community without an engaging word of the gospel. The good news is, is that God gives us insight into this. And we are not too far gone, nor is the American church. We see this. And, and God has blessed us here at First Baptist with solid teachers of the word. We have Sunday school teachers who study weekly, daily, to come before those that come to class, to hear and understand the Word of God. We have teachers that are teaching even now, children and preschoolers. There, are, there is this, this, this broken mentality that they're babysitting, but ultimately no, because the commission is not go therefore and babysit people in church buildings. It is to teach the Word of God. And that's what's happening. When it comes to the gospel accounts in Scripture, these first four books in the New Testament, I want to bring this to our attention, that we are often are reading or studying it incorrectly. We do so just like we read the letters, and we read those correctly, but we bring that model to the gospels, and we're missing much. We miss much. Because here's what we know about the gospel accounts. They're not always chronological, though mostly it is, but not always, not everything. And they're definitely not day-to-day diaries. Because you will find in Matthew something that is referenced in Mark, but in Mark it happens before the event it takes place in Matthew. And, and so sometimes you're going to see some things, well, that's kind of odd. I thought this happened first, but it's happening over here first. And this is addressed in Luke, but not even talked about in Mark or John. So rather than everything in the gospel accounts being chronological, what we must do is force ourselves, and, and you have to because it's not natural force, force ourselves to study the gospels Understanding there is a thematic approach to sections of the Gospels. The theme is presented, and you will see story after story after story after story for a short amount of time within the Scriptures that all are connected to that theme at some level. And then there will be a shift to a different theme. And that's how you taught in first century Israel. That's how the, the, the philosophers would teach. That's how the rabbis would teach. And ultimately, go figure, God uses those that he has to pin the words and put them down for those that need to read it from that moment on till, till the time that he comes back, and it's taught in the very same way. This may be why one gospel writer includes a story another does not. I believe it is. And yet there are those in our world, maybe even some in our own church building right now, who doubt the veracity of Scripture and will use these concepts as reasons for not believing Christianity or, or reasons for not believing in the inerrancy of the Bible because they view what they deem to be inaccuracies or contradictions. Yet a proper study of the Scriptures will show that there is an overarching teaching point that connects multiple stories within the Gospel in ways our Western minds often miss. So, so you have these stories that take place. We'll do a little exercise here. Why not? I mean, we got time. It's not even two yet. Um, you have your Bible? Get your Bible. It's sitting on the board. I just want you to work with me here. Let's see. We got, a, yeah, we got the upper deck, lower deck here. We can kind of work here. So let, let's just... Um, We'll let you guys do Matthew. Just look in Matthew. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew before you. We just got brand new ones. They're really nice. You need to open them, break the binding, make them look used. So they're all the same version now. It's amazing. So get you one of those Bibles. I want you to look in Matthew's account. I want you to look for the story. Just find where it is. Where Jesus is baptized and then where he is taken to the wilderness and uh, tempted by Satan. Just find where it is. Don't have to read it. Just find where it is. Section, Middle section. So upstairs too. Matthew right here. Everybody, middle section right here. Gabby, I see you up there. So you listening? So, okay, make sure you pay attention. Yeah, there you are. 
The light's blinding me. So right here, we'll do, uh, man, we'll do Mark. Gospel of Mark. We're going to let John be where he is. We're not even going to look in John. You guys look in Luke. Same story. Baptism of Jesus, temptation of Jesus. Just find where it is. All right? So, so uh, Matthew. Anybody find Matthew? Upstairs, downstairs, just where, where is the, where, it, what chapter is the uh, baptism of Jesus shared? Chapter 3. Okay, upstairs, Matthew, folks. Where is the uh, temptation of Jesus in Matthew, if you found? Where is it? Chapter 4. What, it, what's happening between the baptism and the temptation? Is there another story in between? No. Okay, so you have baptism and you have temptation. That's all I need. Thank you. Middle section, Mark. Mark didn't, he didn't waste a whole lot of time on it. He, he kind of just, he got right to it. Where is it? Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, you got just a couple of verses referencing the um, baptism. All right, so where is the story of the, of the temptation? Right after. How many verses? Just a few? Not a whole lot, right? Right. So it's basically said, yeah, he was tempted. Move on, right? What happens in, Ma- in Mark's account, what's going on between the baptism and the transfiguration? Anything? Not much? No, so really nothing. So it goes right to it. All right, here we are. Luke's gospel. Good doctor. Dr. Luke. What chapter is the baptism? Three. What chapter? Upstairs. Anybody what chapter is the, transfig- or is the transfiguration? Is the uh, temptation? Four. What, what is there anything between the baptism... And the, tra- and the uh, I keep calling it transfiguration, the temptation. What? A genealogy. Now, man, I mean, seriously, a genealogy. This is 2,000 years before Ancestry.com and the Mormons ever showed up. And you've got a genealogy wedged in between two primary stories in Scripture. And, and, and genealogies, when we come across them in Scripture, often, because it's our Western mindset, and our goal is to finish the book, not to enjoy it. Right? We skip that part and say, a bunch of people I don't know had a bunch of kids I don't know. And then we get to the next passage, right? Now, now here's the deal. There is a thematic approach to every gospel account of that particular story. And there is a big-time reason why Luke writes it in the way he writes it, and wedge it. And it's not even the same genealogy from Matthew 1. That's Mary's genealogy. This is Joseph's. And there's, a, there's this genealogy kind of stuck in there. And if you're not careful, you're going to just skip over it to get to the next story so they all kind of line up. But there is a major reason why it's there. And here's the thing. I'm not getting into any of that today. I just wanted you to know it's there. That's an hour's worth of teaching. I will tell you this, though. It has a lot to do with the Garden of Eden, has a lot to do with the first Adam and the second Adam, and a whole lot of comparative analysis. But I just wanted to show you an example that you have three gospel accounts. You have John, too, but he doesn't address it the same way. You have these three gospel accounts telling the very same story. And I know, oh, yeah, but it's to a different audience. That's just a minor part of it. I mean, I've grown up parked on the whole thing. Well, the whole thing is because it's to a different audience. That's a minor part of it. The major part of it is there is a theme laid over that chapter and a theme laid over that chapter and an overarching theme over that one that makes that matter much more. And as we must do when we study the Gospels, 
We must try to develop the lenses in our glasses and in our eyes to see the Word of God as God would have us see the Word of God. Otherwise, we will find ourselves guilty of just reading a bunch of stories that we don't know how they're connected one to another. And they're good and they're gospel and they're wonderful and they're great and you combine them and you can teach them and you can have devotionals with your kids. But if you don't get the fullness of it, you're not getting the full story. And so I'm just telling you. I'm repenting of the fact that I've not made those connections very clear. Today, I hope to, at least in this aspect. The joy of teaching and preaching the fullness of God's Word verse by verse and theme by theme, it rescues us from simply coming up with an idea and searching for text to support or expound on it. Let me just warn you, uh, potential pastors and, and, and Sunday school, current Sunday school teachers and potential teachers and small group leaders, I don't think, I, I know God can work through it and, and we'll give God credit for doing what only God can do. But in my estimation, it is more valuable to go into the Word and let Him unpack things for you than to sit there and go, I need a class on marriage. I need a class on divorce. I need a class on finance. I need a class on parenting. I need a class on being a single adult, on being a married adult, on being a man, on being a woman. I mean, blah, 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 blah. And now let me go look up Google about 15 verses to support what I want to study. The danger of Googling a bunch of verses that are not interconnected in context is you will pull them out of context. And you will create a theme of what you want to learn. And you really won't need to learn anything because you've already created the theme of what you want to learn. And then you're just looking for verses to give you support. Rather than going into the Word and being brave enough to follow the themes and the stories in such a way that God will build that foundation for you. You say, yeah, but i got issues. I need these classes on these. Hey, you know who we are? We're going to change the name of the church. The church of issues. That's who we are. We're really not changing that. Somebody just woke up. Now they're mad. No, we're not changing the name of the church. (laughs) But I'm telling you, everybody in the room has issues. And everybody wants to find a verse to answer their issue. Let me give you a little insight. Whether you're one of the four people that were praying down front or you're one of the people praying in your pew, there's not a person out here that doesn't want answers for circumstances when they hit. The Word of God is the answer. He gives it to us through His Word. Jesus is that answer. But you have to know how to read it, how to study it, and be in it in order to be able to draw out through the Spirit's guidance what it is that you need at that time. So we're in Matthew 20, verse 17. And I want you to know that you can look back to verse 19 a little bit too. And because here's the challenge. What's the theme? we got three verses where Jesus says, Hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. I'm going to hang on a cross. I'll die. I'll rise again. It's just a random passage stuck in the middle of Matthew 20. It's powerful. It's the gospel. It's going to happen. But why are we getting that? Didn't we just have a story about uh, a, a guy who had a vineyard and hired a bunch of workers and paid them all the same amount regardless how much they worked? And doesn't that follow a Matthew 19 story about a rich guy who thought because he was rich, and by the way, everybody thought that, not just that guy, that the rich guy is more godly and he's obviously going to heaven. And Jesus tells that rich guy, in order to follow me, you've got to sell everything you have. Now, he didn't tell every rich guy that. He told that guy that. Then you got a story about kids. and Then if you look a little bit ahead, go ahead, you can cheat. Look down. you got a story about James and John that we'll talk about next Sunday. James and John, two guys really close to Jesus, who at this point, really weird, their mama shows up. For those of you who are teachers, this is the parent conference you don't want. For those of you who have ever coached, this is that parent. This is about playing time. 
This is why my kid's better than that kid, and why didn't he play more? That's what this is. And mama shows up to have a meeting with Jesus. And her entire meeting concept is, and there's some say, well, maybe she's related to him. She may be. There's this theory that she's Mary's sister. Salome is her I mean, maybe, maybe. There's a small country. I'm sure there's, there's some relation there through the genealogy if you go back. She comes to Jesus. James and John are two of his best buddies. And she says, hey, Jesus, at the end of time, when the kingdom has come, when you bring it in, not fully understanding what that, even that meant because she wasn't hanging out with him the whole time. She says, I want to make sure James and John are at the seat number one and seat number two. Let me just say, we'll talk about it next week, that didn't go over well with the other ten guys. I think there's two things happening with the other ten guys. There's a group of them going, when's my mama coming? And there's another group going, who does she think she is? So there's all that. Then you go to the end of Matthew 20 and you see that Jesus heals two blind guys. won't get into that today too much either, but two blind guys get healed. And that's great and that's wonderful, but here's my question. Why not everybody else get healed? Why only two guys? So when you're starting to look for a theme, it becomes pretty obvious when you look at these stories connected in this way, and at least obvious to me. In my study, this is what the theme that I really, really kind of thought was happening here. And you might want to call it, that ain't right, or you can say, that's not fair, but that's the theme. That ain't right. Rich guy can't go to heaven because he's rich? Well, that ain't right. Guy works, uh, guy hires a bunch of day laborers to work for him and he pays, he pays them all the same amount, though some work 10 hours and some work an hour. That ain't right. That's not fair. James and John's mama is able to come to Jesus and try to get a seat for them at the table higher than ours. That is not fair. And his, the mama's thinking, I came to Jesus. I've known you since you were a kid. Why won't you do this? This isn't fair. Two blind guys get healed. Well, what about everybody else? I mean, there's a whole bunch of blind people. Jesus is the son of God. Couldn't he just do, boop, every blind person now can see. Boop, everybody with cancer now is healed. Boop, everybody that's deaf can now heal. Why didn't he just do that? It's not fair to just heal two of them. So all of a sudden, you start noticing this theme that runs through Matthew 20. The theme is, humanity looks at life and says, this ain't right. God says, but here's how it will be. Then we look to God and say, that ain't right either. All of a sudden, the revelation that God is not fair becomes very clear. God is unfair, according to our understanding of fair. That's the entire chapter 20, with a little bit of 19 hanging on there. So, help me out here as well, some theologians. In your Bible that you've opened and read and you follow along in my reading, some Bibles have helps that are added as subheadings to just help you find stories. It's not a sin to have those. Mine have them. Those aren't inerrant. They're just table placements, right? So in Matthew 20, verse 17, right before it, is there a subheading in your Bible? And if there is, what does it say? All right, one one person. Third prediction. Third prediction of Jesus' death, or Jesus foretells of his coming death the third time, right? Do you see that third time thing happening? Okay, now, now, but when you finally get that this is a part of a theme, and you see in the middle of it, and Jesus tells them for the third time, my question is, well, where was the first and second time? So let's look at Matthew 16. Let's back up a little bit. Matthew 16. I'm going to go quickly now. Verse 21. This is number one, right? Does yours say first time? Anybody have a thing? He's going to foretell his death. That's the first time anyway. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's a whole lot of meat right there. Right? But let me help you see it in a thematic place. This section of the first telling of his death is not just randomly thrown in there. It's part of a series of stories. And Matthew 16 has this theme that lays upon it. And the theme is about signs and wonders. They're wanting signs, right? You go back in, in, in Matthew 16, you look uh, just a little bit ahead. Uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees dem- demand a sign. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the bread story. Peter confesses Jesus as Christ. Jesus tells of the death and resurrection for the first time. Then it's to take up your cross and follow. But it's all about signs. I want a sign. Need a sign. Got to have a sign. Now, I, I, was, I was driving uh, back from uh, Kentucky uh, Friday this week and uh, made it in. But as I'm on the interstate, now around here when I drive places, I've driven around here so much that I don't read the signs like I used to. You don't either. You know where you're going to exit. You don't, I mean, they, 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 unless they change the lane and they shift things and now you've got to pay a toll, you're not reading signs. But if you're driving somewhere that you don't drive all the time and you're on the interstate, you're going to notice those green, blue, and brown signs. And you're going to notice them for a lot of reasons because they're going to tell you what's coming up. Rest area, one mile. Gas station at this exit. You know These restaurants are here. If you want to go this road, you need to take. be prepared. In five miles, you're going to take a left. So you're getting a little bit of insight. GPS does the same thing, but just the signs are there for that purpose. If you're coming in from Interstate 10 and entering into Jacksonville, you're coming home, right? And you exit I-295 off of Interstate 10. There is a sign on I-10 that says Orange Park. Now, you and I know that Orange Park is quite a distance from that sign. But that sign tells us that if you take this exit and go I-295 south and you stay on it, and I think it may even say St. Augustine. I mean, you can actually end up eventually in Orange Park. But if you stop at the sign, you're not in Orange Park. And the sign is there to give you direction and instruction. What's happening in Matthew 16 is Jesus gives a sign. And Peter's sin of being, letting Satan influence him is multifaceted. But one aspect is Peter stands up and says, ignore the sign. Far be it from you to die, Jesus. Blah, 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 blah. And Jesus is going, seriously? Get behind me, Satan. They have to see this sign. This is coming. You ever driven I-75 south, meaning to get off at I-10 to head to Jacksonville? And you miss it. There is not a quick turn. I mean, you're, you're, you're south of Lake City before you can turn back around. Right? I mean, you, you've added time. It's frustrating. I've, I've, I've done it once, years ago. I'm, now I just drive this. I said I'm in the right lane as soon as I, I hit Atlanta. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not missing it. So, and it, here's the thing. If you ignore signs, you're going to end up where you don't want to be. That's Matthew 16. All right, I'm just telling you. Matthew 16. Same Jesus, same story. Going to Jerusalem, dying on a cross, rise again on the third day. It's going to be bad. It's going to be good. Theme, signs and wonders. Matthew 17. 
Verse 22 and 23. Sign, this is the second time Jesus says the exact same thing. In verse 22 he says, They were gathered in Galilee. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. It's the same message. It's not less important. It's just as important. But there's something happening in Matthew 17. Matthew 17 is about faith that transforms. That's the theme. You have the story of the transfiguration. Finally got it right. Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John on the mountain with Jesus. Jesus is transformed before their eyes. You have the story in that, in that chapter of a demon-possessed uh, boy who is healed. Faith that leads to transformation. And oh, by the way, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me, hang me on a cross, I'm going to die and be raised again. And faith leads to transformation. So then you get Matthew 20. You got Matthew 16, 17, and 20, and they all have Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. Is it because they don't get it? It's because it's not chronological. That's one reason. The other reason is there's a theme that lays above that, and you need to understand that that thing that's going to happen in Jerusalem fulfills every one of those. And ultimately, when you get to chapter 20, you're reading about all these things about unfair, and you get to this story about Jesus, and you have to ask this question. Is it, in in verse 17, it's just kind of stuck in there, is it fair for, uh, I don't know, is it fair for the mom to do what she did? Is it fair for the uh, guy to not pay everybody the same? Is it fair for the blind people not all get healed? Is it fair for the innocent man who is perfect, who's never sinned at all, to be put on trial? found guilty on trumped-up charges, humiliated publicly, stripped of all his earthly possessions, stripped naked, beaten to a pulp, executed in the most grotesque and painfully public way. Is that fair? No! No! It's not fair at all! But the Gospel is not about fair. It isn't fair. But it is right. In God's economy, it is absolutely right. The gospel is not about fairness. The gospel is about life. It is about hope. It is about rescue. It is about redemption. It is about sacrifice. It is about the death of the one who did not deserve it so that all the ones who did wouldn't have to. You know what I said last week? I said everybody gets surveyed says, yeah, we want everything on an even playing field and everything fair. But we really only care when it's, uh, when it's on us uh, as, as being treated unfairly that it tends to rise up. Jesus did what he purposed to do. The world clamors for fairness. Can I just say, fairness is the last thing we need. Well, that ain't fair. Is it right for Jesus to have to die? Absolutely not. Then do you want the alternative? Because if he doesn't, you do. Because if he doesn't, you have to. Because the wages of sin is death. Jesus did what he had to. He did what he was purposed to do. He did it for the glory of the Father and for the good of people. And he did it because it wasn't a man-made story. To pull all these stories apart, to just pull a story apart and go, oh, wow, That's a great little story about this vineyard owner. And just park on that one is to miss the fullness of what God is trying to teach us. 
And we're all guilty of this. We love our New Testament stories. We'll pull the prodigal son story. We'll read only the prodigal son story. We'll bind it, put it in a book, and sell it as the prodigal son story. And we'll just read the prodigal son story. But isn't the prodigal son story a story of redemptive life in God and grace and mercy and forgiveness that is echoed and connected with about three or four other stories before and afterwards? Yes! You miss the fullness of it all when you read the Gospels like a letter. And we have to be able to read it as God would help us to read it and to choose for us to read it. To separate the stories of the gospel and miss the themes leaves us with interesting little stories that if you pull Jesus out of them, they're little more than fables. But they're much more than that. They're God's good news. Connected as a bigger story. And I am thankful, and you should be thankful as well, that God is not constrained by our definitions of fairness and ought to. 